Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right. Welcome to this show. Um, I am. I have a couple of things that I need to tell you first. One of them is that today is one of the days when we are doing the show in a format that we call Radio for the Deaf. It's our attempt, I think it's a successful attempt, to make radio programming possible for a deaf audience. And what we do is we have two fabulous uh, interpreters uh, who are here, uh, Heidi and Mary Sue. They're here in the studio with me. They will be interpreting everything that I say in American Sign Language. That interpretation will be up on the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. So go on Facebook, find not my page, but the Colin McEnroe Show page, and you'll see a live Facebook feed video feed of this show in American Sign Language. So if there's anybody out there that you know anywhere in America or elsewhere even who you think might enjoy something like this, a show about wrongful convictions, um, and who is part of the deaf audience, please let them know about this because we are essentially right now the only people doing this particular thing. Um, okay, so that's uh, thing number one. Uh, thing number two, uh, we have a terrific show ahead of, uh, you, ahead of us and ahead of you, although I will warn you, as I did before the news, I, I don't know about anybody else, but my blood pressure goes up with this topic. It is so upsetting. It is so uh, counter to the notions that underpin our, our idea of the American legal system, uh, of American justice. You know, so much, so much of it does derive from Blackstone's famous formulation, uh, better that uh, 10 men go free than one man, one, 10 guilty men go free than one innocent man uh, be punished. Uh, and, and the other thing that I would just quickly say is this problem is exacerbated by the scale of American incarceration. Um, one statistic that I developed on my own today, think about this for a second. All right. In the context of the United States, Connecticut, where I'm sitting right now, has a very low incarceration rate. We have one of the lower incarceration rates in the United States. But if Connecticut broke off and became a separate country, a separate nation, it would have the second highest incarceration rate in the world. It would be number two to the USA. It would be slightly ahead of Cuba. I don't know. We've, we've actually been dropping our incarceration totals uh, lately. We may be dropping down to a point where we're about dead even with Cuba. But just think about that for a second. You know, I mean, Connecticut, which is pretty enlightened around this, we are not, we're not Louisiana, um, which is the highest incarceration rate in the country. And so, but despite that, we'd be number two in the world if we were a separate nation. And one of the things that means is if we get it wrong, if we have a rate of error uh, in incarceration, if we're locking people up for crimes they didn't commit, if it's 1%, it's 23,000. If it's 5%, it's over 100,000. Um, so our, our, the, the harm induced by a rate of error in this country is, is exacerbated by the sheer incredible size 
I mean, we're the world's largest incarcerator in terms of uh, rate of incarceration. It, so the sheer size uh, of our prison population means that any rate of error is even more intolerable. But it could be argued that any rate of error is intolerable anyway. Uh, let me tell you who we're going to be talking about, uh, talking to today. Mark Godsey is joining us. He's the co-founder of the Ohio Innocence Project and the author of Blind Injustice, a former prosecutor, exposes the psychology and politics of wrongful convictions. Uh, joining us uh, from uh, CBC Radio Toronto is Brian Cutler, a professor of psychology at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology and the author of several books, including Conviction of the Innocent, Lessons from Psychological Research. He's going to help us understand why, uh, why it can be that an innocent person can be sent to prison based on eyewitness testimony or, or, or confession, things that should be really dispositive, things that seem open and shut. How do those things go wrong? But Mark Godsey, we're going to start with you. Um, I talked a little bit about the sheer size of the American prison population. It's harder to know the size of the problem of wrongful incarceration because if we knew who was wrongfully incarcerated, and we could count all those people up and create some kind of percentage out of them. We could also let them out of prison. So, so how do we talk about how do we talk the, about the scope of the problem, Mark? Well, this is how I talk about it. I mean, um, there's a database online called the National Registry of Exonerations, and I think it has more than 2,100 clearly identified wrongful convictions that, that um, in, in the United States over the past 20 some years. And, you know, many of our clients from Ohio who we've exonerated through our projects are, are on that database. And so some, some people, I guess, the more cynical or the ones who are sort of in denial about the problems of the system will add up that number, and then they'll add up the total number of people who have been convicted, and they'll say, well, you've only exonerated, you know, 2,100 out, out of the millions, and so it's only a point zero zero one percent you know, or whatever that number is. Um, but anybody who's looking at this issue with any degree of intellectual honesty and actually studies it realizes that the cases we've identified are the absolute tip of the iceberg. Um, because in every single one of them, I mean, I just walked out of a speech where I spoke with two of our exonerees. Every single one of them, it's like you can look at the case and say, if not for this miracle or that miracle or this miracle, they would still be in prison. Um, you know, for example, for DNA testing, you know, a lot of these people are exonerated from DNA testing, but in the vast majority of cases, that we look into where somebody's been screaming their innocence for 30 years, and then we take their case and we go and try to find the DNA to test now to prove them innocent, um, the police and prosecutors have thrown it away. And so it's you know, a small percentage who are really lucky that you can actually find the DNA to test um, decades later. And so you know, even in the non-DNA cases, um, you, know, you can look at it and you can say that every single one of these people is incredibly lucky, and if one or two little circumstances and coincidences hadn't happened, they'd still be in prison. Um, so it's it's very very hard to come up with a number. Um, some social scientists have estimated between two and five percent. I would say that's probably right. I would agree with that anecdotally from my own beliefs, um, from what I've seen. Um, but we one thing I can say with absolute certainty is that the numbers that the innocence movement has identified so far is the literal tip of the iceberg. Right, and but I should say that we will be talking to a, an exoneree uh, later in the show. Uh, you'll hear exactly what one of these stories is like. They're all a little bit different, uh, but they're all a little bit the same too. Just in, in terms of the frustration uh, that they that they they extract from us, and the incredible price that they exact from the people who are wrongfully incarcerated, and sometimes for the, from the people who, who put them there too, who, when they realize that they're wrong, uh, become very upset as well. So yeah, I mean, I think. 
think I've seen some of the same statistics that that you have. Um, uh, I th- is, is the database that you were just talking about is that the Samuel Gross database? Yeah, it's called the National Registry of Exoneration. Samuel Gross is one of the leaders of it, and right. um, at the University of Michigan and University of California Irvine, um, it's it's a sort of consortium of of the universities that have all the guidelines and enter the information. Right. So his analysis yeah. was uh, maybe a 4.1% wrongful incarceration rate. And one of the things that makes it, I would assume, even more difficult, Mark, is that, I mean, the most fly-specced, uh, highly examined cases are death row cases because there's so much on the line. In fact, I think your chance for uh, exoneration drops if you're taken out of death row and put into life imprisonment, just statistically, because there are not as many people working to save you uh, at that point. But also, 95% of felony convictions in the United States are plea bargains. And I just think, I would assume there... Yeah, there you go. Yeah, I mean, maybe you can elaborate a little bit. very hard to undo. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you know, many innocent people plead guilty. And, you know, it can be easy to convince someone that they're going to get convicted either way. Um, you know, an innocent person, be convinced that they're going to get convicted, and it becomes a rational decision to cut your losses and try to accept 20 years instead of the electric chair. Um, and... But the, the way the law is set up in most states, including Ohio, like in Ohio, if you've pled guilty and then, you know, you start screaming your innocence from prison and you say, I basically had this plea extorted from me, but I'm innocent, you can't get DNA testing. There's no right to DNA testing. It can be sitting on the shelf in the police department, and it would cost nobody anything to go test it to prove you innocent or guilty, and it doesn't happen because you pled guilty. So you're right. Like 96% of, of cases in this country are resolved by plea. And so that huge chunk of, of people in prison, some of them are innocent, um, but there's really no mechanism to actually get them out. It becomes very, very difficult. Of the 26 we've freed, two pled guilty, and we know it just shows how hard it is to actually break into those cases. I speak about this issue all across the world. Um, the innocence movement is actually spreading in every continent. And it's interesting, you know, you go to these foreign countries and they think of our police system in America as this sort of third world, just bizarre, um, barbaric process, um, the way we would think of some process in the Congo or something, you know. And it, for us, it's been around so long, it's like a stain on the furniture you don't notice anymore. Um, I think it's helpful uh, to give some examples. Uh, maybe in a nutshell, give us uh, one of the cases you covered, that, that of Dean Gillespie. Tell us that story. Yeah, well, in the late 80s, there was a string of three rapes in the Dayton area. Um, the Dayton Mall, and they had the same M.O. where the guy would approach these women just very brazen in broad daylight outside the mall and flash a badge, pretend to be a police officer, um, and then abduct them and take them into the woods. And even on the drive, the M.O. was very specific. He would say these things like, I do this because I was molested by my grandfather when I was 12. He would brag that he was a contract killer for the CIA, um, all these things. And the, the the three women gave a description, and um, a composite sketch was made, but they, they couldn't find the perpetrator, and the case went cold. Um, Dean's is one of the rare cases. You know, most of these wrongful convictions happen from, like, negligence. It's not someone who's intentionally trying to, you know, hurt an innocent person. But there's an inference from the evidence that can be made that he was sort of set up. Uh, Dean was 25 years old, and he had a good union job at General Motors, but he, had, he was in a huge fight with management. Um, and his supervisor eventually took his GM photo down to the police station and said, this guy looks like the, the perpetrator of this ser- you know, serial rape from several years ago. We've had a poster on our wall for several years. Um, and, you know, he ended up getting convicted. The, the, the three victims all identified him. What we didn't realize is a lot of evidence that came out later and through our investigation 
um, we were able to determine that actually um, Dean's work enemy had tried to bring his photo over earlier, and some experienced detectives had investigated Dean and exclusively, conclusively eliminated him as a suspect. Um, and then those detectives retired. One moved to Arizona, one went to Florida, and the new detectives who took over was actually friends with Dean's work enemy. Um, and the file that had previously existed that eliminated Dean as a suspect and had all the information that showed he could not have done it actually disappeared. Um, and they went forward with Dean, and he ultimately got convicted. And there was some very questionable eyewitness identification procedures, which Professor Cutler can talk about. Um, you know how that is, is how easy it is to get somebody to identify an innocent person when the proper procedures aren't used. Um, and also through our investigation, we were able to identify strong evidence of the actual perpetrator, a guy who had committed similar crimes with the same M.O., uh, even said that the same things to victims, like I'm a contract killer for the CIA, and I do this because I was molested when I was 12. He had a history of flashing a badge and pretending to be a police officer in order to commit crimes. And so both from showing evidence of police misconduct and developing evidence of the actual perpetrator, um, we were able to free Dean and get him exonerated. Um, it was one of the you know very difficult non-DNA cases because there ended up being no DNA. He's one of those cases where we started off trying to find DNA, but it had been lost or destroyed by the police. Um, so let's get Professor uh, Cutler involved uh, here. I think we have him on a studio uh, connection uh, from Toronto. Uh, Professor Cutler, can you hear me? I can hear you fine. Thank that, you. That is great. Okay, so, uh, you know, I, uh, you heard uh, Mr. Godsey mention this uh, notion of, of eyewitness testimony. I want to start there. Um, I was listening uh, to get ready for the show to one podcast. There's an actual podcast called Wrongful Conviction. I was listening to one where the, he, the host had two guests. One of them was Jennifer Thompson Canino, uh, who was sexually assaulted. Uh, the other was a man named Ronald Cotton, whom she had positively identified. She, while she was being sexually assaulted, made a conscious decision to memorize as much as she could about this man's appearance uh, and about his face. She picked him out of a photo array. She picked him out of a lineup. She testified against him in court. She's now trou- she's now doing guest appearances with him after he spent 11 years in prison, uh, basically asking his forgiveness, which he has granted, for wrongfully identifying this person. But how can that happen? How can it be the case that a person who's made such an incredible conscious effort to get this visual identification uh, can do it wrong. Well, that, that is a very interesting case, and there are many, many more interesting cases uh, like it. Uh, to begin with, uh, humans are, are generally pretty accurate with, with face recognition. It's, it's adaptive to be able to recognize uh, people in our lives. We, we typically don't make mistakes recognizing our, our friends or our family members. The conditions under which crimes occur, however, often challenges our face recognition abilities. Perpetrators are, are often strangers. Uh, an eyewitness might see the perpetrator for a, ver- a very brief period of time uh, under uh, relatively impoverished conditions. The eyewitness might be experiencing extreme stress if it's a violent crime. Uh, a weapon uh, can be present that can uh, uh, draw the witness's uh, attention. Uh, perpetrators may be disguised in some way, even subtly, such as wearing a hat or a, a hood that, that covers the hair and hairline. These conditions uh, challenge an eyewitness's ability to form a memory for a perpetrator that's suitable uh, for later recognition. So we have these, what we call, perception or encoding factors that that challenge memory. Uh, Once a memory is encoded, um, uh, the passage of time uh, can lead to erosion, can lead to forgetting 
of, of a memory. And we've also learned that uh, the conditions under which eyewitnesses attempt identifications uh, can also uh, have a powerful influence on, on, uh, on eyewitness identification accuracy. Uh, Mr. Gotze, uh, uh referred to a case where there were some questionable identification procedures. Um, what we know uh, from uh, decades of psychological research is that eyewitness identifications take place in, in, in social context. It's a, a social exchange between an eyewitness uh, and an investigator. And the manner in which the test itself is conducted uh, can influence a witness's motivation to make a positive identification and actually the accuracy of that identif uh, identification. There, there's a good deal of research on how, uh, how the manner in which eyewitnesses are instructed about the identification test, uh, whether the test is a, a, sh a show-up, a, a single person at the scene of the crime, or a photo array or a lineup, uh, what other persons are selected for a photo array or a lineup uh, makes a difference, how the lineup members are presented to the eyewitness, and even uh, whether the person conducting the test knows the identity uh, of the suspect in a lineup. Uh, all of these factors can influence the quality of the identification test and ultimately the decision uh, that an eyewitness makes. So when you put all that together, there's, there's a good deal of, of room for error in eyewitness identification. Now, we also know that eyewitnesses don't uh, convict uh, defendants. Judges and juries do. So there's a whole other piece of this, and that, that's the sensitivity of juries to the factors that influence eyewitness identification. Uh, Mark Godsey, and, do you want to uh, elaborate on this, too, from your end? Yeah, I mean, uh, I think that, um, you know, I used to be a prosecutor, and uh, I can remember an instance where we had worked on a case a long time, an FBI agent and I, and we had a photo spread, and we had the person, the, the witness come down, and we were, um, you know, we didn't want our work to, to be wasted, and we felt like this guy was guilty, and, you know, he was picture number two. And we showed the, the six photos to the, to the eyewitness, and she picked our guy, and we jumped up and went out in the hall and did touchdown dances and whooped and hollered and high-fived each other. Um, and we now understand from the psychological studies how that really influences the confidence level of a victim. Um, you know, the nutshell is that human memory is very malleable. At least it's more malleable than most people realize. And the steps that prosecutors, like what I did when I was a prosecutor and the investigators do, the things they say to the eyewitness and the way they behave can really change the testimony later at trial. And the witness doesn't even really realize that they've had their, um, their memories uh, manipulated. And so um, psychologist Dan Simon calls this synthesized testimony. I mean, when I was a prosecutor and we would get witnesses ready for trial, we had our view of what we thought happened, you know, and, and we had tunnel vision and we were locked into it. We knew we were right, even if we weren't. And when witnesses said things that really didn't comport with our view, we would sort of grill them on it. And you could see witnesses start to move. And, you know, if, if a witness the first time said, you know what, I think he was still in the bar at 11 o'clock. And that's when the crime happened. And so this witness is giving the guy a, an alibi. If you're a prosecutor or police officer and you think the guy's guilty, you start grilling him. You know, uh, well, other witnesses are saying this, and how can you be sure? And wasn't it? And, and many witnesses will start backing off their statement and, and 
before long you have them saying, well, you know what, now that I think about it, you're probably right. I think you probably left at 1030. You just, as a prosecutor or a police officer, sort of minimize this guy's potential alibi. Um, but that's playing on human memory. Um, and you can see that sort of, you know, malleability in human memory in your daily life if you pay attention to it. But that's one of the things that's causing wrongful convictions, both in eyewitness identifications and just in general testimony as well. So Brian Cutler, in, in Mark Gotze's book, he, he writes that false, convi- false confessions are a leading cause of wrongful convictions. Um, these, this is a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around, but of the first 325 DNA exonerations in the U.S., 88 of them, 27 percent, involved a false confession by an innocent defendant. I, I think when you talk to the unconverted about this, it's the hardest thing for them to wrap their minds around, that a person would conf- confess to a crime that he or she she did not commit. So, uh, Brian Cutler, help us understand this. Sure, it is very, uh, uh, very difficult for uh, for anyone to understand why somebody would false falsely confess to a crime to their own uh, great detriment. Uh, I think what's what's lacking in the, the general public is is an understanding of the sometimes extreme conditions to which uh, suspects can be subjected in the interrogation process. Uh, we know from the research on, on wrongful convictions that uh, a substantial portion, as you mentioned, of these cases involve false confessions, and a substantial portion of those false confessions are the result of very, very persuasive or even coercive interrogation processes. Uh, uh, investigators have been honing uh, psychological interrogation te- techniques since the 1950s, uh, they've become very good at uh, uh, putting pressure on on guilty suspects uh, to confess um, uh, or, or make admissions. Uh, what what we have to realize is that when uh, occasionally when it when an innocent suspect gets caught in that same net and is subjected to those same powerful pressures during the interrogation, that some portion of them will basically cave to that pressure pressure and falsely confess. Um, Another part of this that I think is also very hard for a lot of us to understand, um, and I'll start with you, Mark Godsey, but I want to hear from both of you about this, is situations in which prosecutors become aware of new evidence, become aware of reasons uh, to reconsider a case, uh, aspects of the case that have subsequently fallen apart uh, post-incarceration and don't want to do it. It it seems as though if a prosecutor or any part of the law enforcement apparatus is committed to the philosophy of public safety, public safety is not expanded or insured when someone innocent is locked up or someone guilty goes free. So, Mark, maybe you can just talk a little bit about why does that happen? Why does there seem to be such a reluctance uh, to to reconsider and such an eagerness at times to convict uh, on possibly uh, a flawed fact pattern? Yeah, well, I mean, that's the thing that really sort of uh, blew my mind at first when I started doing this work. I mean, I'd been a prosecutor previously, and, you know, the first case that I took to court as an innocence attorney, we had ironclad DNA evidence showing our client Clarence Elkins was innocent. And, um, you know, the prosecutors just started spinning the evidence in all these really ridiculous ways to avoid admitting that they had made a mistake. And, um, you know, many of us who, when you start this line of work, that becomes the thing that's so shocking. And that's what ultimately led me to write the book. 
I mean, there's a phrase in the innocence world that describes these prosecutors' arguments called the unindicted co-ejaculator. Um, and then you'll say, you know, this guy's making an unindicted co-ejaculator argument. We all know what that means. Um, and the typical sort of most generic uh, formulation of that is in a case where, you know, a, a woman was raped, she was attacked by a stranger, she was raped, she went to the hospital, they collected semen from the perpetrator and put it in a rape kit. The guy who was identified has screened his innocence and has been in prison for 20 years screening his innocence, ultimately gets the right to DNA testing of the semen, and it comes back and proves it's not him. Um, you would think if you just talk to somebody in a bar on the street, they would go, well, of course the prosecutor will let that guy go. But what happens often when they're presented with that evidence is they say, oh, well, well, there's no way that there's a mistake here. This guy's clearly guilty. Um, the victim just must have made a mistake. There must have been two perpetrators. Um, she just didn't see the second guy. And, you know, your guy's guilty. He just didn't ejaculate. His friend, whoever it is, we don't know his name, but he's the one who ejaculated. So that's why we're picking up his DNA in this DNA test. And, you know, it doesn't mean your guy's innocent, though. And, you know, you go back and look at the trial transcript, and the victim would be completely 100% positive that there was only one perpetrator. Um, and so that's just an example of just going into this extreme psychological denial. Um, I think it's cognitive dissonance. I think it's people who um, uh, their identity is, is wrapped around the fact that they're doing good for the public and they're helping victims. And they don't really can't accept the idea that um, they might have made a mistake that caused an innocent person 20 years of their life. And in, in some of these cases, like Clarence Elkins, because they made a mistake, the real perpetrator stayed out on the street and raped three little girls. Um, human beings have a hard time coming to terms with that level of mistake, so they often make a knee-jerk reaction. And then we'll just sort of engage in these, you know, mental gymnastics to try to explain that the mistake wasn't made. Um, you know, I think um, that plays a lot of it. It's, it's just tunnel vision, I guess, is another word for it, but uh, just a form of psychological denial. Um, and I, I would like that, too. I mean, uh, when I started in this work, I was, I had a prosecutor's mentality, and I was a law professor. Um, I took a new job as a law professor, and the dean sort of asked me to help supervise this innocence project, and I thought, thought at the time, this is you know completely nuts. There's not innocent people in prison, and the original cases the students talked about, I just sort of internally did eye rolls and thought these guys are completely guilty. And a couple of the clients, you know, ended up being proven innocent, and so I had to go through this sort of conversion. But um, I, I eventually, you know, became a true believer that there are problems. But um, those who are deeply invested and embedded in the system are, in my opinion very much denial about a lot of these problems. Um, Brian, um, as we head towards the end of this particular segment, maybe uh, you w would add a little bit to this. In the second segment of the show, we are going to hear uh, of it from an exonerated man who was convicted largely due to the efforts of what we could, I think, unequivocally call a bad cop. Um, but a lot of these don't involve real bad cops or bad prosecutors, right? They seem to involve people who think, as Mark is suggesting, that they're doing the right thing. Uh, yes, well, uh, and Mark uh, uh, speaks directly from experience. I, I don't have the experience in, uh, as, as a prosecutor, but as a social psychologist, uh, uh, we, we're well-versed in, in attitudes and beliefs in general, and we, we talk sometimes about a belief perseverance effect, and, and that's that when people hold, hold beliefs strongly, uh, they're capable of, of persevering in those beliefs despite pretty strong evidence that the, that the beliefs are incorrect, and, and certainly prosecutors are, the, the, the belief perseverance effect uh, is not limited to prosecutors, it affects many of us with our widely held beliefs. 
All right, we're going to take a break here. When uh, we come back, we'll still have these two very fine guests, but you'll also be meeting a man named Scott Lewis. We're going to take this from the world of abstraction to the world uh, of human beings. Uh, you'll meet somebody who spent a lot of time in prison for something he did not do. Um, the forces that caused that, I understand, I don't think are driven by malice. Um, I think are just, are just expressions of ordinary human feeling. But the consequences are what are so sad and awful. Most of what ails our criminal justice system lie in an unwarranted certitude on the part of police officers and prosecutors and defense lawyers and judges and jurors that they're getting it right that they simply are right just a a tragic lack of humility of everyone who participates in our criminal justice system We can all say that we're never going to commit a crime, but we can never guarantee that someone will never accuse us of a crime. And if that happens, then, you know, good luck in this criminal justice system. That's a clip uh, from Making uh, a Murderer, uh, two defense attorneys uh, talking in particular about the Brendan Dassey uh, conviction uh, based uh, on uh, what is pretty clearly a coerced uh, conviction, um, if you've seen that series. I mean, uh, one of the things that did strike me as we were getting ready for the show today is that in a very sickening way, the prevalence of wrongful convictions has kind of spawned a subset of the American entertainment industry. I mean, there's now a Netflix series called uh, The Confession Tapes that uh, I think it's six uh, different instances of, of uh, coerced or in, in otherwise distorted uh, confessions. Um, obviously, Serial, uh, the, the podcast, uh, as I said before, there's actually another podcast series simply called Wrongful Convictions. I've been kind of addicted to a fictional series called Rectify, which is also about a wrongfully convicted man. I mean, we do it so much that it's kind of turned into a, a thing that, that we're drawn to. Uh, well, anyway, we're here now to talk to somebody whose story is not at all fictional, unfortunately. Uh, he is Scott Lewis. He's in studio with me right now. We still have, by the way, Mark Godsey, co-founder of the Ohio Innocence Project, author of Blind Injustice, a former prosecutor, exposes the psychology and politics of wrongful convictions. We have Brian Cutler uh, from the University of Toronto Institute of Technology, the author of, among other books, Conviction of the Innocent, Lessons from Psychological Research. Uh, with us now is, as I say, Scott Lewis. He now owns Lewis Real Estate Services in Wallingford, Wallingford but he's traveled a long, long road to get get to that point. So, um, Scott Lewis, uh, it's a story that you've told many times, but maybe uh, for people who don't know your story, uh, give them a, a quick summary. Uh, yes. Um, I was arrested in April of 1991 for a double homicide that I did not commit. Uh, the arresting officer at that particular time was a, a known rogue police officer in, within the city of New Haven. Um, and he... Uh, manufactured uh, a lot of evidence uh, pointing toward my guilt uh, through the very means that uh, you guys were uh, talking about previously, uh, false confessions, false statements, um, 
you know, manufacturing of evidence, uh, things of that nature. How long were you in prison? I served a little under 20 years in prison. I, I, I guess it's a stupid question to say what was that like, but I mean, maybe even if you could just sort of go back to the moment of your sentencing, sitting there or standing there in court, knowing that you hadn't done this thing, uh, hearing your guilt pronounced, hearing a, a sentence uh, laid upon you. I, I don't know. What goes through your mind at a time like that? It was quite unbelievable. Um, keep in mind, I had a co-defendant who was convicted a year prior to me. Um, so watching his trial and seeing everything that went through with him, I, I kind of laid and I said, well, you know, the lawyer, the defense lawyer didn't uh, try to establish his innocence. And in other words, the defense was just trying to create a reasonable doubt in the minds of the jury. And I just felt that, you know, as an innocent person, that's, that, that's not enough. You know, one should be trying to put forth a defense that establishes uh, they are innocent persons. Um, unfortunately, during the course of my trial, I found out the realities of the trial in terms of the uh, evidentiary rules can be, le- can be grossly manipulated uh, by overzealous prosecutors um, in making legal arguments to uh, judges who, in, in my opinion, at least in my case, have an eye toward uh, gaining a conviction as opposed to uh, getting to the truth of the matter. Um, And as a result of that, uh, the juries are not allowed to hear evidence that bear on the the truth of the matter. Um, They're restricted to only hear evidence that are relevant to uh, obtaining a conviction. What ultimately caused your sentence to be vacated? Why are you out now? Um, So there was the uh, Brady issue where there was the suppression of the very type of evidence that I was speaking of, uh, that the jury was uh, denied uh, the opportunities to uh, hear and evaluate uh, when determining my guilt. Um, 20 years is still a very long time, (laughs) a very, very long time. Um, Maybe I want all the guests to talk about this a little bit, especially you and and Mark, but maybe you can begin, Scott. Um, It just seems that it seems incredibly difficult to vacate a sentence. It seems incredibly hard that the burden is so heavy on, on the person who's incarcerated. Uh, it's, it, 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 are there things that you can identify? We should say that in, while in prison, you became uh, a law student. You began t- t- uh, learning as much as you possibly could about law. Does it strike you that there are just burdens that shouldn't exist on a person seeking exoneration? Definitely. Um, one has to take in mind, as soon as a person is arrested, there's a, a perception in the public uh, that that, indiv- that individual that was arrested by the police must be guilty of a crime. Otherwise, he would not have been arrested. Um, so once the prosecutors uh, sell that perception to, to a jury and a judge, it's almost impossible to, to undo that conviction because the judges who review the lower court's decisions say, well, the jury has made their decision and they reached their decision based on the evidence. Um, and the burden of trying to undo that evidence that the judges say that the juries um, made their decision would have to be evidence that undermines the, the, the jury's verdict. Um, and, and then sometimes, you know, what that means, in fact 
and what that means in law are two very different things because the the procedural aspects of the case um, when judges evaluate the evidence is really going to be left up to the judge's view of the evidence in light of the evidence that the jury heard during the criminal trial. Um, And then what happens is sometimes they go into an analysis, well, this evidence was available, why didn't you present it Mm -hmm. during the criminal trial? And a lot of blame goes to defense lawyers. Um, And then when you make the kind of claim that I made, a Brady violation, um, prosecutors sometimes say, well, the evidence wasn't material to, you know, Mr. Lewis's innocence of guilt, so that's why we didn't turn it over, or the police didn't give it to us, which was sort of the situation in my case. And then the judge looks at it from a legal perspective and believes one way or another whether it's material or not to have undermined the confidence of the jury's verdict, but no one takes into consideration that, you know, this is evidence that was held from the jury and the jury reaching their decision in and of itself. Uh, so it's definitely an impossible task. And on top of that, there's a public perception that prosecutors and judges are trying to protect that they did everything right and nothing went wrong. Um, Mark Godsey, you know, we have an expression here uh, in the English language, an open and shut case. And we seem to really like those cases to stay shut. Um, we don't think of it as this kind of ongoing process, which can be repeatedly rethought based on on new facts that come to light. Why is it? I mean, maybe you can say a little bit more. Um, Scott, I think, has very eloquently uh, talked about how that worked in his case. Why is it so hard to to reopen? Why is it so hard to exonerate, sometimes even when you, you have in hand the facts that you need? Yeah, I mean, uh, case after case, you can find examples all across the country and in my own docket where the evidence is clear the person's innocent, and um, it's the, it, part of it's the denial I talked about earlier. Police prosecutors and judges don't, psychologically don't want to admit a mistake. They um, are human, and humans will react in certain ways when they're confronted with the idea that they created a, a huge mistake, which a wrongful conviction is, and don't want to admit it. Um, I mean, I've got a case right now, uh, Donald Castor in my office is litigating, a guy named Kevin Thornton who was... Um, uh, convicted of going in and robbing a check cashing place. There was one worker there, a woman, and she was um, the guy took those zip ties, those plastic zip ties, and, and tied her legs together and her hands together. And um, his face was covered; she couldn't see, like you know, um, his face. And Roger, and we did DNA testing and found a man's DNA on the hand zip ties and the feet zip ties, and it wasn't our client. Um, but then it had what's called photogrammetry done of the video. There was a, a video in the store that showed the perpetrator, showed the crime happening. And that's where an expert goes in and measures everything, like the height of the counter, the height of the windows. Um, and in every frame, there's sort of basic geometry, and you can determine the height of the perpetrator. And there's a six-inch difference between the height of the perpetrator and Kevin Thornton. Um, and so we went back to court and presented the DNA evidence. Look, the DNA all over these zip ties is a man, and it's not our guy. Um, and there's a six-inch difference. And Kevin Thornton's still in prison. Um, why is that? It's because there's all sorts of procedural bars that the courts can invoke. And just like Scott said, the court there said, well, you know what? The defense attorneys could have done photogrammetry at the time before the trial. Uh, they could have done DNA testing before the trial. Um, they made strategic decisions not to. You only get one bite of the apple. You could have done it. You didn't do it too bad. You spend the rest of the time in prison. 
You know, I, I'm going to I'm going to pause you there for a second, Mark, because I'm a, I'm worried about the time here, I, and I want to go to Scott. I want to ask Scott. I want you to ask you two questions about Kevin Thornton, a man you've never met and you never heard of until two seconds ago. Um, uh, Kevin Thornton is still sitting in prison for a crime which is sounding very much like he he probably didn't commit. Let's assume that's the case. Then you could talk to Kevin Thornton right now about his state of mind, his state of heart while he's sitting in prison, um, wondering why the kind of evidence that Mark is talking about isn't enough to get him out. What would you say to him about how to survive these days in his head and in his heart? I would say to Kevin that, um, one, you have to be persistent. Um, Innocent people, um, they just don't give up. They keep fighting. And two, you know, as hard as it is, you have to believe that Ultimately, at some point in time, the system will work uh, because it's hard to fight for your innocence within a system if you believe that the system doesn't work. We know that the system has many flaws and it's not perfect. But I think, you know, from a man who's innocent, you have to believe at some point in time uh, they will get it right uh, and just be able to absorb everything in between those moments. Scott Lewis, let me ask you a second question. Let's say that Kevin uh, Thornton, after a long incarceration, does get out. What would you say to him about his first weeks and months outside? Uh, what would you t- advise him about his what his state of mind or, or, or overall demeanor should be? Uh, the way I went about it is, you know, I prepared myself for the moment the days would open every day that I was in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, so prepare now for your freedom to come. Uh, don't, uh, you know, lose sight of the fact that you're an innocent man in at one point in time, the system will get it right, open the doors, and then you need to be prepared for when the doors open so it doesn't catch you by surprise. Um, Brian Cutler, we still have you. It's We know it's hard to be a parolee even under conventional circumstances. I, I would assume uh, psychologically that for people who have been held wrongfully for years and in some cases decades, uh, getting out would uh, impose a bunch of psychological burdens. Is very much known, Brian, clinically about that? Uh, there is a, a growing uh, research literature on on the experience of individuals who have been uh, exonerated. Uh, and and uh, we know several things. Uh, we know that uh, uh, exoneration doesn't necessarily close the chapter, that uh, stigmatization can continue, um, uh, that uh, part- particularly where, where the uh, crimes were originally unsolved, um, that the, per- the perpetrator wasn't uh, discovered, that uh, the, the individual who's been exonerated can, can still be stigmatized and, and, and thought of as, as by some as the person who committed the crime. So, you know, in addition to uh, losing uh, the, the many years, such as uh, in Mr. Lewis's case, and, and not keeping up with um, really changes in every aspect of, of society, uh, they uh, may face difficulties uh, uh, getting jobs or careers. They may face uh, difficulties uh, within their uh, communities uh, w- with respect to uh, uh, reputation, and they may continue to experience uh, uh, stress, anxiety, and uh, and have other consequences from, from the prison experience. Right. I have stress and anxiety just hearing this story. I can't imagine uh, living it. All right. We have to take a break. I want everybody to have time to talk a little bit about how they would make things better here in our final segment. So stay with us. I'm not willing to lay down and die because I am an
Today's show was produced by Jonathan McPants and me, Kion Wolf, with help from our intern, Julius Brown and Betsy Kaplan. Thanks to Carlos Mejia, Tucker Ives, and our friends at Source Interpreting. The part of Bill Curry was played by Tim Robbins. Now, back to Colin. So we've been talking about wrongful convictions uh, with Mark Godsey, whose book is Blind Injustice. A former prosecutor exposes the psychology and politics of wrongful convictions with Brian Cutler, uh, whose books include Conviction of the Innocent, Lessons from Psychological Research, and with Scott Lewis, who owns Lewis Real Estate Services in Wallingford. Uh, He is uh, someone who has uh, survived and endured a wrongful conviction. Um, We've got about uh, eight minutes left to fix this entire heavily flawed system. So uh, let's see if we can wave our magic wands around a little bit. And Scott, I'll start with you. Um, if you could fix something that's wrong right now, if you, uh, if I could, if you could pass a law um, or something like that that would change things, make it easier for an innocent person uh, to, to get justice, what would you do? I would allow judges that are, are appointed or elected to um, rule over these cases to have uh, longer terms and have those terms not subject uh, to being um, voted in by prosecutors um, because I think that uh, a lot of decisions that judges make are kind of uh, prosecutorial biased and I think a lot of that has to do with being reappointed to the bench. They don't want to piss the wrong people off um, and I think it needs to be uh, a little bit like the federal system. Mm. Um, Mark Godsey, what about you? What would you do? 100% agree. If I could wave a magic wand, I would get rid of elections for judges and prosecutors. Um, that's not, there's a lot of things we can do to fix it. I outlined that in the last chapter of my book. Um, but if I had a magic wand, I could only pick one. That's what I would do for two reasons. It's a big part of the problem. And two, it's going to be the hardest one to change. So you got to have a magic wand. Um, Mark, I'm going to ask you this kind of on behalf of Scott. I don't know whether it's on behalf of Scott or not, but one of the things that struck me reading about this uh, stuff and reading about Scott's case in particular is that um, the the penalty, so to speak, for making a mistake, for being unwilling uh, to help uh, to correct to correct a previous error, or in Scott's case, I mean, he had a bad cop. He had a truly bad cop who was going after him. Scott did twenty years uh, for for that. Um, the the cop in question, I don't think, is, is going to do twenty years. Although I believe he did get he he did no he get he was like suspended or something a suspended sentence. You know, he he was forced to resign with retirement. So it's just. Seems to me like the the in cases of actual malfeasance, Mark, uh, the penalty for sending somebody to prison incorrectly and, and knowingly should be higher. Yeah, I mean, I'm actually shocked that in his case that the officer actually had any penalty at all because, in you know, some of the cases I've discussed where there's clear misconduct and you know federal court even finds misconduct, nothing happens. Um, you know, in Illinois, the two officers who were responsible for coursing wrongful convictions and getting false confessions, um, you know, outlined in case after case, then get hired with taxpayer money to teach interrogation techniques to other police officers. So there, there's a, a big problem that, you know, if the, if the people in charge of the authorities, if law enforcement is in denial about these problems, um, they're the only ones who are there to penalize or prosecute the wrongdoers. And if they're in denial about it, they're not going to do it. Right. Scott's um, cop, ha- Scott's cop had some other uh, issues as right. well, in addition to just Scott. Definitely. So yeah. um, that's probably got him in more trouble than what he did to Scott. Exactly. Um, Brian Cutler, before we run out of time, how about you? I mean, particularly, you know, your specialty seems to be in, in these areas of eyewitness identification, uh, of confessions. Are, are there modifications that can make these less prone to error? Uh, there are, and, and they are happening around uh, around the U.S. My, my recommendations in brief— would be to implement 
uh, best practices and eyewitness identification tests. Uh, the best practices are already in force in some states and police departments that will reduce the risk of false identification uh, and confidence inflation to begin with. I would also recommend uh, implementing Practices with respect to interrogations and confessions, mainly uh, recording interrogations in their entirety. Entirety that's also happening uh, with increasing frequency uh, around the U.S. Uh, and uh, relatedly, uh, re- uh, reducing the use of uh, accusatory interrogation techniques for more information gathering techniques, such as has been done in the U.K. and uh, and what's happening in, in Canada. Last, I would uh, make greater efforts to educate uh, fact finders, judges, and juries about the root causes of wrongful conviction, uh, uh, such as mistaken identification, false confession. Uh, there, there are other such causes so that fact finders uh, can uh, uh, hopefully better uh, uh, decide who should be convicted and who is innocent. Scott, uh, you get the last word, 45 seconds. I, I, I think maybe my question for you is, I mean, you seem calm. I'm sure you're not calm every day. <laughs> but uh, how do you keep from just boiling over with anger all the time? If something like this had been done to me, I don't know that I would be able to sit here even now with the kind of equanimity you're showing. I think I'm just a driven person. I've, I've always been a driven individual. Um, I recognize that there was a, a severe wrong done to me in my life. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit past that. And what I have to do now is just take whatever opportunity I have to speak about the issue, mm-hmm. tell my story and, and just encourage people that, you know, it's very important that we get it right. Um, well, thank you. First of all, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for sharing your story. You need a real estate agent in the uh, greater New Haven area? Uh, call Scott Lewis up. Uh, and we'll, thanks for listening to this. Thanks for our great interpreters here who uh, carried this broadcast along with us in American Sign Language on the Colin McEnroe Show, Show Facebook page, where it will still be available. If you know anybody in the deaf community who would want to listen to this, guide them to the Colin McEnroe Show Facebook page. 